0: It needs to get done fast. We have to get this thing done quickly and get it down there, get it out there. A lot of people have said it, and I think it's absolutely right. We can't let the perfect be uh, be the enemy of the
1: good.
2: Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C.
3: And in New York, I'm Laura Conway. Today is Wednesday, January 28th. That was Honeywell CEO David Cody you just heard at the top of the podcast. He was talking about the economic stimulus package, which the House of Representatives is expected to vote on at some point later today. On this show right now, we're going to talk about the latest, greatest idea for saving banks.
2: And, more fun, we're going to hate on John Thane a little bit. Not Laura and I, but Adam Davidson and Felix Salmon of Portfolio Magazine. But first we have our Planet Money indicator.
3: David, the indicator today has to do with bathrooms.
2: Right, and one bathroom in particular?
3: Yes, this one that belongs to a guy named David Spate. He's a professor. He lives in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts.
1: The numbers are one instead of two.
3: Okay, one what?
1: Uh, one scoop of sawdust instead of what had traditionally been two scoops of sawdust.
3: And what are you using the sawdust for?
1: Uh, we we use uh, we traditionally use two scoops of sawdust to flush our composting toilet, the toilet in our home.
3: So you go, you make a deposit as you say, and yeah. then you throw in two scoops of sawdust, and yeah. So why one all of a sudden?
1: Well, um, the place where we've always gotten our sawdust or wood shavings from, are... Uh, We live in an area where um, there are a lot of furniture makers and cabinet makers, um, and they're happy enough to, uh, when they're planing wood, they produce a lot of these wood shavings, and they're happy enough to have someone come by and pick them up every once in a while. We use them for both our toilet and our other purposes around the farm. And a couple of months ago when I went to one of these cabinet makers, Jim Picardi, um, he was finishing up a an order of cabinets for Smith College and he said you know I don't have any orders behind this one to fill in I had a couple but one of them was canceled another one was postponed so I'm not sure when I'll have wood shavings and we at that point became aware that our supply of wood shavings was really dwindling and um, thought we'd better begin to ration them because this became the story that we were hearing among all of our woodworker friends that they were that they did not have orders, and they wouldn't be planing wood in the same way in the immediate future.
2: Laura, you know what our editor Jonathan Kern said about that indicator? What's that? He said that is the kind of economic indicator you just do not get on Fox News.
3: <laughs> no, that one's that one's patented Planet Money right yeah, there. Don't touch it, Fox. Yep.
2: Um, I know we don't pay attention to the stock market, but it did jump like straight up earlier today. And one of the reasons we don't pay attention is because it reacts to rumors. But the rumors today were pretty interesting. Uh, The rumors being that the federal government will set up a big bad bank to hold a lot of the bank's toxic assets to sort of take them off the bank's hands. And this would just be a huge, huge change in direction for the
3: bailout. Yeah, this thing about the so-called bad bank is that right now the Treasury Department is really not taking the assets, the toxic assets, the mortgage-backed securities, the stuff people don't really know how to value. The Treasury Department is not taking that stuff off the bank's balance sheets. It's mostly using the bailout money to buy stock in banks, and they've spent hundreds of billions of dollars doing that.
2: Right. And the idea is it's supposed to shore up the bank's balance sheets, but it just does not seem to be enough to heal the banks. The banks are still holding all the junk and no one is quite sure what the junk is worth. So the banks are in this weird state uh, where investors look at them and they say, are you dead? Are you alive? Are you insolvent? We don't know because you're holding that stuff and we have no idea what it's worth. So this is that phrase zombie banks are sort of like the walking dead.
3: So now the bad bank idea. You know, our intern Alan Cordova actually a couple of months ago came in and started talking about bad banks. And I think it's kind of been percolating around for a little while. And it's back now in sort of a new form of plan A for the bailout.
2: It, I mean, it really is plan A. Right? We didn't have the nice phrase bad bank back when Congress was debating the bailout plan. But, you know, Henry Paulson, Treasury Secretary, then originally wanted to buy up all the junk that was clogging the system. Uh, And that was Plan A, and we are basically back to Plan A. So I called up Mr. Plan A today, not Henry Paulson, but Larry (laughs) Ausubel. I wonder where he is. We probably could grab him. Uh, Larry Ausubel at the University of Maryland, uh, we've had him on before. He had been working on a very fancy type of auction the government could use to buy up these toxic
4: assets at some appropriate price.
2: And I asked him, is this right? Are we really back to Plan A?
4: It's back to Plan A. Uh, Whether you call it the Treasury buying the assets or you call it a bad bank buying the assets, it's still the government buying the assets and getting them off the bank's balance sheet.
2: What happened to bank stocks after the rumor this morning? I assume they went up, right?
4: Uh, Some of them went up incredibly. Like uh, For a while, uh, Bank of America and Citibank were up 18 or 20%.
2: How much would this cost? Because when Henry Paulson talked to All Things Considered, he said, you know, the, the toxic assets were a big, big pool and it was going to cost a lot of money if you really wanted to take a substantial portion of them off the hands of the banks. Do you have any sense for how much it would cost?
4: Uh, I I don't have any estimate of the numbers, but what you have to assume is it's going to be a very large amount. I mean, the, the pool... Of uh what people are calling toxic assets is probably over two trillion dollars. That doesn't mean the cost of writing the system is going to be two trillion dollars because these assets have some value. It's not that they're worth zero cents on the dollar, but there are are lots of assets you can pick out that are worth thirty cents on the dollar, sixty cents on the dollar. And when you start multiplying it out, it's going to cost very serious money.
2: So the government would need a couple trillion if it wanted to buy all this stuff. And then in the end, they might find it's worth, you know, one and a half trillion or something. But uh, but they would need a bunch of cash initially to buy this stuff.
4: Oh, uh, without question. And we don't know what the calculation will end up coming out to, but it's uh, going to come out to... A highly significant number.
2: So that would mean additional, substantial additional money appropriated by Congress, I guess.
4: Uh, you never know whether it will be done directly through an appropriation or whether it will be done through uh, some backdoor device like a loan guarantee that later comes home to roost. Uh, Congress did grant the Treasury broad authorities in connection with the bill authorizing TARP. So the presumption would be that policymakers would try to write uh, a formula for a bad bank that comes within the existing authority.
2: One consequence of setting up a bad bank would be that you actually establish a real price for these toxic assets that... No one has been quite sure what they're worth, and as a result, some banks, which right now are kind of saying, "Yes, we're fine, we're fine," we would would turn out to be actually insolvent, right? And those banks, so that that's sort of part of the scary part, I guess, about doing this is that you find out who's who's drowning and who's not.
4: Uh, exactly, but many of us have the view that it's really better to know than not to know, even as part of what you learn is incredibly bad news because at least then you know some of these banks simply have to be taken over and it will take a significant amount of expenditure but at least when there's an upside later the taxpayers will get some benefit out of it it'll also be very comforting to know that there are some institutions out there where it will then be resolved they are actually solvent and they can just go on.
2: Laura, so we may hear more details uh, about the big, bad bank plan this week, if, in fact, they do decide to do that. Uh, Larry Ausubel at the University of Maryland there, I, I should mention, you know, he he's really one of the kings of these uh, reverse auctions. He and his colleague Peter Crampton, they have a piece of software that's been used for $5 billion worth of these uh, auctions. The French use it for auctioning part of their uh, I think electricity capacity. So uh, he, he is one of the experts and if they do go this way, uh, may very well be involved.
3: you would blocked Something about a dry run he did with his students a while back, right?
2: Oh yeah, they did a dry run with students just to see kind of if the system could be gamed and how well it would work. And the students all tried. Some of them told me they were going to try and basically, you know, cheat if they could, and they were sort of supposed to, but but nobody could, and it all worked out. I think the university ended up spending—I can't remember how much it was. It was like it was thousands of dollars. It was 10, real 11, money. Thousand. Yeah, it was yeah. real money. I mean, I guess that's that's the cost of doing research in economics, you gotta pay the students an hourly wage.
3: Yeah, I'll actually I'll dig that blog post up and put it with a post for this podcast. We're of course at npr.org slash money. And now that shift gears a little bit, let's talk about somebody who's been getting a lot of bad press, John Thane, of course. And this is a guy who just cannot get up on the right side of the bed when it comes to dealing with the media. <laughs> Thane is the former head of Merrill Lynch, and he came in back in 2007 to run the great big brokerage firm. He was well-respected. Here comes our hero. And then it was just financial loss after loss after loss. And then late in 2008, the bank gets sold to Bank of America, and that looks good or maybe not so good.
2: Right, and then we find out that Thane was planning to ask for a $10 million bonus in 2008, and, and then— We hear about this $35,000 commode he put into his office.
3: Yeah, while Bank of America was trying to absorb all these losses that they did or did not expect to be coming out of Merrill Lynch. Last week, John Thane was pushed out of his position. And now, to make his troubles worse, the New York attorney general has subpoenaed him over the bonuses that he pushed through for his executives right before Merrill was sold.
2: This is a guy I think a lot of people really want to hate. You know, he seems to be this embodiment of greed on Wall Street. We've been talking about this around the office a lot, and Adam Davidson... He he was trying to make the case, no, wait a minute, you know, maybe he's not so bad. Maybe there is a way we can understand and even sympathize with him.
3: Right. So we thought, you know, OK, Adam, that's kind of crazy, but you go ahead and you go for it. So Adam comes trucking in one day with Felix Salmon, who blogs over at Portfolio. And the two of them sat down to figure out if we really should hate John Thane.
0: Let's talk about the $1.2 million office. First off, if you're running Merrill Lynch... I mean, it, it is a company that can lose ten billion in a quarter and still be around to lose over twenty billion a year <laughs> later. They have a lot of billions, and a million really isn't that much when you have many, many billions, tens of billions. Um, so, so on the one hand, it's a different, you know, if if the CEO of NPR remodeled their office at one point two million, that would
5: be a big deal. But on the other hand, John Thane is meant to understand these fallacies. That's part of what makes him a admired technocrat. And he clearly did understand the symbolic value of expenses because he was the one who took the fresh flowers on the executive floor of Merrill Lynch and replaced them with silk flowers because he was going to save $20,000 a year on flower expenses.
0: And that's where it is hard to really justify <laughs> it because he was playing by different rules for himself and others. Although then I say, OK, well, let me think. So I, I'm taking over this company that's in a little bit of trouble, and I'm going to be bringing in investors and shareholders and you know regulatory officials and others, and I want to give an impression. I want them to feel like this is a solid company.
5: Have you been to these offices, Adam, in the the big investment (laughs) banks? They all are in gleaming steel and glass skyscrapers. And half of them, the weird half, you walk into this gleaming steel and glass skyscraper, and then you walk into the CEO's office, and it's all oak paneling and leather bound books and old oil paintings and commodes on legs and $85,000 rugs and all the rest of it, and you just get this enormous cognitive disconnect. You're like, why are you pretending to be in some 17th century mansion when clearly you're in the middle of midtown Manhattan? And it doesn't make sense. And I don't understand how that is going to make any regulator, investor, or anybody else feel more at ease with your company. So
0: so if you want to accomplish that, you probably could do it for less than $1.2 I
5: just don't understand... Why you'd even go there in the first place? All right, so so you've shot. Okay,
0: so so the hating John <laughs> Thane side is 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 winning so far. All right, now let's get to his bonus. He reportedly, according to the Wall Street Journal, insisted on a ten million dollar bonus. Well, although it, it he came Bob
5: down. With- I think he started at thirty to forty million, and then in in a in the spirit of compromise, he he decided that he was only going to ask for a mere $10 million. And then when that got leaked by the board to the Wall Street Journal, he he just gave up and said, all right, already, right, I won't take a bonus.
0: But, you know, I, I can actually, dare I say it, see his perspective a little bit in my exercise by saying, well, wait a second, he came to Merrill Lynch when it was already in trouble. He didn't cause the problems. And at least according to many, he did better than others might have you know in in getting merrill lynch to safe land i mean it he he successfully sold it to bank of america it didn't disappear like bank like like uh
5: you see and this again is is i think being a little bit too um nice to john thing because we're you know in this exercise of hating on john thing right now and there are many accounts which basically said that the it was Greg Fleming much more than John Fla- Thane. What was Greg Fleming? Greg Fleming being the president of Merrill Lynch um, who did most of the real work in, in selling the bank and persuading John Thane that he should sell the bank. Um, what's more, John Thane, when he came in, came into what he knew was a distressed institution and took a bunch of write-downs, and everybody expected him to take a bunch of write-downs when he came in, in the fourth quarter of 2007. He, and that was when he took that big $10 billion loss and spent $1.2 million on his office. And the idea was that you have, Mr. John Thane, you have this quarter to give us any amount of bad news that you can possibly think to give us, because... This is your opportunity to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? This is what I've inherited. This is how bad it is. And this is where we say, thus far and no further, we're going to recapitalize ourselves. We're going to get lots of new investment from the Middle East and elsewhere. And we're going to start on a new era of growth and prosperity. And after taking that big 10 billion loss in the fourth quarter of 2007. That was meant to be the end of it. Instead, he wound up losing $27 billion in 2008. And that really was his fault. He can't blame
0: whoever came before him. He has to...
5: I mean, of course, it was it was legacy positions which, um, which were responsible for a large part of those losses. But he could have hedged those positions in the fourth quarter of 2007 and just taken a big charge and said, those positions are hedged. We are not going to take any more losses on them. And instead, he just continued to held, hold them on his books and continue to see them deteriorate further and further and further in value.
0: But it's really the fault of the board and the shareholders, right? I mean, it's the incentives that they set up. John Thane has a boss or a group of bosses, the owners of the company, you know, the shareholders and, and, and the board that represents
5: them. It's almost... Never do investment banks listen to their shareholders. Uh, the shareholders are notoriously ill-served by the CEOs and employees at investment banks who are normally out for themselves, mainly. And the shareholders of investment banks never made that much money. I mean, Goldman Sachs went up quite a lot, and various other investment banks you know, did well in terms of their share price. But compared to the amount of money that the employees were making... You know, that was where the serious money was. You were always made much more money being a banker than being a shareholder.
3: Okay. Well, you heard it. That's Felix Sandman of Portfolio. And he says, you know, John Thane, not such a good guy after all. That's what he says. NPR's media correspondent, David Fulkenflick has another take on the story.
2: Uh, he digs into a recent interview that Thane did with CNBC. It's on our blog, npr.org slash money.
3: David, I think that does it for us here today on Planet Money. I'm Laura Conway.
2: And I'm David Kestenbaum. Take care out there. Thanks for listening.